When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, today's guest is singer, songwriter, and guitarist Dave Haas from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Together we take a deep dive into the writing, recording, and inspiration behind the fan-favorite single, We Could Be Kings, taken from Dave's 2013 solo album, Devour. Dave drew lyrical inspiration from a common theme that he's witnessed throughout his life from a number of friends and used it to base the story of the song around. When he began writing Devour, he initially thought that it was going to be the next Loved Ones album, which was Dave's band just previous to embarking on a solo career. At that point, he had one solo album under his belt, but was unsure if he was even going to do another one. As fate would have it, a series of crazy events happened, and he was able to put together an all-star cast of musicians and producers to make the record happen. Dave went on to tell a funny story about playing the track for Matt Skiba and asking his opinion of it. He didn't follow Matt's advice, but now wishes he had. And the amount of people that Dave and I have in common that we've separately crossed paths with over the last 10 years is astounding. For all this and a whole lot more, don't touch that dial. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. What's up, Dave? Hey, man, how are you? I am fantastic. Where are you at this morning? I'm at home here in Santa Barbara. Um, we were just out. Me and my band were out doing a couple shows. It was Columbus, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, and then a peculiar festival called May Day in, on Long Island. I got back after many, many travel delays, and um, my kids have pneumonia. <laughs> oh. Yeah, so I am. Uh, I feel like a lot of this year, uh, as we come back online and try to tour and, and get back to it, has been pretty pretty difficult. There's a lot of curveballs being thrown, but um, pneumonia for three-year-old twin toddlers is, uh, is, not, is fun. not fun. Yeah. So, but you know, all that to, is to say, you know, everyone's mostly okay and, and we're getting through. Right on, man. Well, uh, I, I promise to go easy on you here. This is going to be uh, going to be quick and uh, as painless as I can make it. I want to give the listeners a little backstory on you. You know, I've, I've known Dave for a long time. Uh, I guess you played in a band called Step Ahead. I was unaware of that. I have heard of The Curse, mm -hmm. uh, your first band. I knew that you played guitar and sang backup for Paint It Black. I love that band. Uh, and then you formed The Loved Ones in, in 04. I remember, I want to say it was 2006, Loved Ones and Less Than Jake did a tour together. Yeah. And, and it wasn't long after that. And I don't know if you remember, it was one of those late night bus shenanigan hangs, but 
you know, you seemed really disillusioned with where you were at with the band. And you came to me. I remember Buddy was there. I think Vinny was there. Mm-hmm. And it was late. And, and, you know, I remember feeling kind of bad when you left the bus because I didn't, none of us really had an answer for you. We knew you were struggling. We knew that you wanted something more, but we really didn't know what to, what to say. And I, I don't think any of us ever said, hey, you shouldn't embark on a solo career. I don't think that <laughs> came out of any of any of our mouths. But to see what, what you've done and how you've reinvented yourself the last 10 years is is really awesome, man. Hey, thanks, man. I, <clears throat> I appreciate that. I remember that hang. I mean, a lot of those hangs... Back then, um, you know, they were highly lubricated with alcohol. And so it was funny, as soon as you brought it up, I I remembered it. It became more crystal clear as you talked about it. But it's always a bit foggy, um, given given how much I used to drink. And I was kind of worried. I was like, "Uh uh-oh, what did I say? But I think that that's a very kind way to view it, what you just said, where I was struggling. And I think, um, thankfully, you guys have been through so much and I think maybe had some mercy on a young, seemingly arrogant guy. You know, I, 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 maybe it would come off that way sometimes, but I think it was just struggling. I didn't know. I think I've always really struggled with how much I love music and creativity and how hard it is to meet that with economics and, and how to, uh, <laughs> yeah. just how to, how to navigate a capitalist world when you are a sensitive soul who likes to make up songs. You know, I think like that's always been a major challenge for me. And so I appreciate that you were, you guys were kind that night and you're kind about it now. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, yeah. And, and plus uh, we're in an industry that's uh, completely shark infested waters. Trying to make a buck in music has, has never been easy, you know, for anybody. Right. Uh, right. But yeah, I never, we, we didn't never took it as arrogant. I took it as a guy that was really passionate about what he did and, you know, didn't want to have to go home and, and, and take a nine to five or, or work in the bars or do whatever. Wanted to wanted this to be their career. You know, 2009, you went out uh, with Chuck Reagan, Tim Barry and, and Jim Ward as part of uh, Chuck's uh, revival tour. Right. And uh, then in, in 2010, you released your first seven inch, followed by the debut full length solo album uh, in January 2011 called Resolutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, went across Europe on another revival tour with Chuck uh, Reagan, Dan Andriano and Brian and Fallon. Uh, I've had all three of those guys uh, on the show. Oh, nice. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, that, I mean, that tour in and of itself is just, it's perfect for the for the music you do and what, and what you're trying to create. You signed with Rise in 2013, uh, who re-released Resolutions. Uh, then your second solo album came out in October 2013 called Devour. And from that record, we're going to be talking about We Could Be Kings uh, today. And uh, the coincidences uh, keep keep happening as, as I'm going through and combing through your story the past two days. This was produced by Andrew Ellicle, who was the engineer on Less Than Jake's Borders for Boundaries album in oh, 2000. Oh, no I've known, kidding. Okay. I've known Andrew forever. How did that come about? Um, well, that was a thing. I, I made resolutions and I was friends with a, a guy named Mitch uh, Townsend. I still am friends with him. He worked, and Mitch played, he played guitar on the record. Yeah, he sort of co-produced it as well. Um, he yes, had a, He yes. had a big hand in, in making it happen. His whole thing, he worked for various record labels. Um, I think he worked for Nitro. He was a tech for various bands. He's one of these guys who's extremely talented and really has a, a point of view in terms of like how he feels like records could be better or whatever. And we, we became friends during the Loved Ones era. He, he wanted to sign the Loved Ones. He was an A&R for Nitro. And we, we stayed in touch. 
And I had him play guitar and pedal steel on resolutions. And his, we had a great time. And he said, look, man, I think, I think you should really think about making a record in Los Angeles with a bunch of friends that I can put together at a studio called Grandmaster Recorders. <laughs> that's where we did it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it turns out that's, uh, that's, that was Dave Grohl's favorite drum room and, and all these incredible records were made there. You know, the first No Doubt record and um, Tool. Yeah, they, they tracked uh, that uh, Color and a Shape. Well, you, you listen to My Hero, the drums on that. Yeah, that's there. Yeah, they actually had all the uh, speakers out in that big garage where you actually parked your car, and they were re- it was remiked out there. Such a cool idea. Yeah, totally. We actually remiked an old deluxe reverb amp for a song called "Becoming Secular" in that same garage. Cool. I tried to keep my arms around you. In the end, it wasn't me. The pharmacy receipt with shaky hands was all you'd really need to scare you but andrew was the guy there he he sort of had the keys to the studio there was an older gentleman that was like an old uh associate of like john lennon and and harry nielsen and know him well i'm blanking on his name but i can i can i can see him when i close my eyes yeah he, <laughs> he owned the studio and um he, you know, he let Stevie Wonder uh, rehearse uh, songs in the key of life there. Like, there's all this kind of crazy stuff about that studio. But Andrew at the time was the engineer there. He re- he was essentially the studio manager. He knew where all the bodies were. He knew where yep. all the best nooks and crannies were to get the sounds. And Mitchell and he were friends. So Mitch kind of came to him and was like, look, there's a singer-songwriter guy who I really believe in. He's a friend of mine. He's got a really great batch of songs. You should attempt to record him and produce this as a means to sort of getting your name attached to something um, that I think is going somewhere. This was Mitchell's kind of pitch to Andrew. Right. Um, So Andrew agreed, and we spent weeks and weeks um, making a record that really I had no business making at that that point in my career. Uh, I had a really small budget, and he accepted that budget. I mean, we probably... If he charged us what it was worth, it would have been 10 times more. I think we made the whole record for five grand. That's amazing. Him and I hit it off. He's he's a quirky cat. <laughs> he's, yeah, uh, he is. Our love for Kiss was the thing that really got us to... Uh, yeah, <laughs> there's, to always bro- a, there's always somewhere with Andrew <laughs> that you can find common ground, despite him sort of coming from a different perspective. Uh, he and I yeah. hit it off as well, and I think... You know, Mitchell at that point, I think, was working for Rise Against, and he got an offer to go to South America in the middle of the recording to work for them. They had a show or something. And so Andrew and I kind of had to put our heads together. And once we did, he realized that I was trying to make more of a concept record, and, and it had to do with getting divorced and all this other stuff. And and once that clicked and he kind of saw the vision, we just were off to the races. But he still masters material for me now and, and has mixed some stuff for me. Like, he is two of the most trusted ears I, I I know of in the music industry. Like, if I have a question about something, I'm always going to Andrew, and he's always gracious enough to field the question. But anyway, so he, he was there, agreed to do this record, 
and we worked really closely on it and and Mitchell and he put together the cast of characters that played on it. I want to get into that because man, the more I dug through here, the more I'm like this is awesome. It so, was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it lists your influences Dave online and I I, I believe all these, you know, cuz you, you can't believe everything you read on Wikipedia, but you know, obviously the boss, Bruce Springsteen, Tom Petty, Clash, Brian Adams, the Hooters, which we've had Eric Bazilian on the show. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, we talked about Andy danced eric is awesome yeah. which he he produced your third album bury me in philly which was released in february 2017 mm-hmm. and i just i thought that was cool but out of your influences here hooters there's eric you ended up working with social d's and influence which david hidalgo from social distortion their drummer played on devour right uh which just blew my mind something that blew my mind even further were you a fan of big drill car yeah i was but i i wasn't super familiar i did like them and they were on some uh you know some mixtapes that people made uh as i was skating and stuff like that but i but i wasn't super familiar i once i figured out that bob was in big drill car and i went back at the time like yeah. basically they were like hey bob wants to play and and he would be a great fit bass wise i did a little more research then you know in 2012 or whatever and i was like wow this is better than i even remembered yeah, well, Bob Thompson played uh, played bass for Big Drill Car. Uh, just a huge influence on me uh, yeah. as, a, as, as a as a young punker. And you know, there was a quote here that I read about your third album. Rolling Stone described it as uh, the unification of punk and Americana. And uh, <laughs> you know, as cheesy as that sounds, on one hand, it kind of sum, sums what you do up. I think perfectly, man. You're you're a perfect blend of both of those um since that record you released two more uh records kick in 2019 and blood harmony um in 2021 but if you can i'd like you to take us back to uh to this time period you said it was kind of a confusing time for you you're going through a divorce a lot of personal stuff Uh, Mm -hmm. do you remember do you remember writing we could be kings yeah i was on a tour for on the tour for resolutions like the headline east coast run and uh, I was out with Mikey Erg. He was opening the tour. We were doing like Florida and um, the Carolinas. And then we were ending on the East Coast. And I had that song kicking around. I, I think that one of the things that was confusing when Resolutions came out, I thought it was just going to be sort of a one-off solo record. And I would go back to the loved ones. And so Devour, the record that we could be Kings is on, was intentionally, well, at the time I thought it was going to be the third Loved Ones record. I thought we were going to sign another record deal and take these songs as a band to um, to that, whatever that record label was going to be. And we were going to, you know, go for our third thing. And uh, so I had written a bunch of the songs for, for Devour and We Could Be Kings came around 2011, maybe the spring. And again, it was intended as uh as a loved one song and when i brought the songs to the band they were excited they were like whoa these are the best songs you've written yet you know the band was really excited and and as we started to talk through the plans the guys in the loved ones at the time were essentially like look we don't want to tour that much we we what if we were to record this third loved ones record and then not tour and I was like, well, and, and, and I, I think they sort of were like, let's see what it'll do. And, and my theory on it was, well, I know what it'll do. It'll do nothing. If we don't support it and we don't go play shows, we're not going to get the word out. Um, and I really want people to hear these songs. So it created this bit of a crossroads. And, and at that time, I kind of just said, well, this solo thing seems to be going well. 
Um, I've had some success with it and people seem to be turned on by the first record, especially in Europe. What if I just made this record as a solo album? And, and that kind of, that turned the key a little bit because I think that in my mind, I, I thought of the band as more of this like boisterous, loud gang, you know, and I think that that's where I thought the energy of that band came in the most handy. And, and, and I think for a song like We Could Be Kings, I thought, well, maybe I can get a bit more, I don't know, I guess I could just get more specific in the lyrics. I could get a little bit more um, sensitive or something, you know, I could, I could try to get into the heart and soul of what was going on in the lyric more if if it was a solo performance. I'm not sure why I made that distinction. Well, the word that comes to my mind is honest. I think this is really honest, this song. I just feel that, and and man, I love the sound of it. I love the production. I think this Me recording too. is great. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I appreciate that. I, I've always loved the production on that record, and, and again, I think it's just I had world-class players in a world-class studio with one of the best engineers that you can find anywhere, and, and they all took a shot on that record, and, and it's something I'm really proud of. It's something... Whenever I'm going through set lists or whatever, when we gear back up to go on a band tour, Devour has some of the trustiest material. Um, and, and that song in particular has been something we can come back to and, and kind of always delivers live. And mm -hmm. it, it's kind of wild. Um, so, yeah, but that was the backstory. And, and I remember having the lyric mostly done. And I sent it to Corey Brannon, who I'd formed a, a friendship with and who I really look up to as a lyricist. He's one of the best, I think. And... Um, I think I either sent it to him or I played it for him. And he, his response was, well, what do you want me to do with this? This looks done. This looks like a complete lyric. And I was like, well, how can I make it better? Or... <laughs> Don't you hate when people do that to your music? I've had it happen. I'm like, but I want it to be better. They're like, well, what's wrong with it? <laughs> yeah, that was his thing. He was like, well, this is what you do. You know, this is the thing that you do best and you're doing it really well here. I wouldn't mess with it. And he's not like over, overly congratulatory or overly... Um, praising he's also not negative either like he's he's a guy yeah. you can kind of trust um that he's going to be pretty steady in his uh reflection on your song but his thing was like you love big choruses and you love the verse to serve that big chorus and that's what's happening here and you have a really good sad kind of story going you know go forward and at the time i didn't have that that signature guitar lick or a lot of the things that sort of are great about the production I didn't have. I just had like an acoustic demo. Sure, yeah, the, all, all the bells and whistles. Yeah, but he uh, he was he was really encouraging in that regard. And, and so that and Autism Vaccine Blues, which I think comes one song later on that record, those three, it was The Great Depression, We Could Be Kings, and Autism Vaccine Blues is kind of how I knew I had my hands around the throat of what the record should feel like. So yeah, I'm not exactly sure in what order they were written. I think the Great Depression was first, and then Kings was second. But it's weird, because all these years later, when I assess it or, or hear it or whatever, I wonder if it's maybe too hopeless. You know, that, that would be my one critique of it. <laughs> well, I, here's another thing. I, was the, you know, you, you said you showed it to Corey. Do you recall it changing? Besides the, the, you know, bells and whistles, the extra guitars and production that happened to the song, you know, was the lyric and the structure and arrangement pretty much the same uh, when you ended up recording it? It was mostly the same. Again, what changed was I had mostly just all the melody and the chords which is, you know, they're pretty standard in terms of like the chord selection and all that jazz. But the melody I, I thought was strong. I think I had 
Oh No Did It Rip You Apart as a lyric when it was going to be a loved one song. And I uh, think once I, once I kind of was coming to terms with, well, this isn't going to probably be a loved one song, I got more into the story of what was happening. You know, this is rejection and all this other stuff and, uh, about the the person getting, you know, stuck and, and then the guy going off to war and all this other jazz. I, I just, I think I just got more brave to write the rest of that story out. And I think the one thing that seems to work is that there's enough unsaid in the lyric that you're not exactly sure. That's where I'm at with it. Right. That's where I'm at. With it. That That's exactly, you took the words out of my mouth. That's where I'm at with it. And, and, I, and I do want to jump into the song in a quick second. I want to say one last thing before we do, Dave. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're from you're from Philadelphia, which is uh, butted up right next to, to New Jersey. Right. And, you know, there's something about this singer-songwriter, the, the, the thing that you do, the thing that the Bouncing Souls do, that Brian Fallon does, it's uh, what Springsteen does, it's... I've talked about this in the show. We Bon Jovi, even. Yeah, it's that working person's music. It's, right, you know, honest, honest lyrics, and uh, everyone I've had from that part of the country, it's, it's all cut from the same cloth. And either you do it honest and it comes across genuine, which I feel you definitely do, but uh, or it doesn't. And I've <laughs> I've heard the singer songwriter thing. I know you have tours like, oh man, this is contrived. Yeah, this doesn't th- th- this doesn't feel real. But but uh, we could be kings is anything but that. The song's three minutes and fifty seven seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, the intro intro is four bars of this arpeggiated guitar panned off to the left. It, it's such a cool cool little haunting riff uh there's a single guitar note too right in the right speaker that starts it but it just rings out over that arpeggio it's great and a single snare hit is followed by eight bars of drums bass and guitar Mm -hmm. there's single chords on that guitar pan mostly right as the main guitar riff continues left Am I hearing the low piano chords here in the intro? Are they there mixed low? They are, yeah. That that was Bo from My Morning Jacket, who was like the secret sauce of the whole thing. He came in late in the process. He's a friend of Mitchell's and then became a friend of ours in the process. And I got a little envy here real quick. This is your second record. You didn't even think you were going to make a solo record. And look <laughs> at the all, all-star cast you put together. Now you got you know the guy from My Morning Jacket playing playing uh, piano. That's I awesome, mean, I man. felt the same way, man. I, I, I felt like uh, somebody gave me the keys to the Millennium Falcon, you know, and, and I was like, all right, I guess I drive. Um, That's so rad. It was incredible. I mean, it also, it, it was really kind of a fantasy situation. I was... Um, not sure where I was going to stay when I made the record. And, and I was, you know, I had separated from my wife. I was, I remember partying with the Bouncing Souls in New Jersey and, and we got um, Matt Skiba on a group call, you know, hey, what's going on, buddy? That kind of thing. And yeah. we were talking and in the middle of that call, I think it was Brian Keenan was like, hey, Haas, you need a place to stay when you make this record, when you go out to uh, L.A. You know, I think, Matt, you're in L.A., right? Like, nobody really knows the California geography (laughs) if you're in New Jersey. And Matt was like, yeah, why don't you just stay at my place? So I was staying at Matt's in West Hollywood and, um, you know, bike riding to Grandmaster, like, right past the Hollywood sign. I mean, it was pretty incredible. Like, the whole thing felt like... um, I had like quote unquote made it or something, you know, like I was making the record as a solo artist, but all these incredible people were, were pitching in to help and, and, uh, believing in the songs, believing in the vision of the thing. And, and it, so I was, you know, I, I really felt like a kid in a candy store and, 
that's um, that's that's awesome. But yeah, the piano figure was was came, did come in from Bo, and Bo, um, his whole thing was even when we asked him to play something on the nose, we'd say like, ah, just do the Springsteen thing here. He would always do something slightly different, and I think this this particular song is the closest we could get him to commit to just doing a straight ahead piano thing because he's <laughs> play so creative. Play it simple. Play it simple. Well, he would go simple. It's just he would add like something sonically always to make it sound like, okay, well, it's not going to just sound like a straight piano. Like we're going to have it warble a little bit and have like its own identity. And and he's just incredible that way. He he hears he hears keyboards in a way that just it, it's just incredible. I don't even I don't even know how to describe it other than uh he comes up with stuff on the fly he goes like let me just get in there and he's got all of his stuff set up and he gets to work and suddenly he hones in on something and everybody goes that's it that's it um but in this particular he's one of those, he's one of those mad scientists he uh, really is yeah i think the yeah. piano part for this though was played on grandmaster owned a billy preston piano like an old yes. white billy preston piano and i think he played that that signature piano thing um i think it's just the chords right it's a da -da -dum -bum. that i think is all on the billy preston piano but but okay. andrew will probably text me when he hears this and go you had these five <laughs> things wrong you know <laughs> hi andrew miss you buddy um the uh after the eight bar uh, eight bars of the band and we get into verse one so this is rejection and it's bringing you down He told you that he'd find work soon Then he stopped coming around That was the summer of sweet nights He used to take you for rides But it all changed in the backseat He came inside So this is rejection And it's bringing you down He told you that he'd find work soon Then he stopped coming around That was the summer of sweet nights he used to take you for rides, but it all changed in the back seat when he came inside. What's going on? Well, you know, I'm just trying to relate. So the character was a was a couple different people I knew. There was always some ne'er-do-well guy, you know, in your early 20s who all the girls were attracted to, but couldn't quite get a job or, or get it together and... I just, I knew that woman well, you know, that the woman that I'm sort of singing to, where she got kind of sold a bunch of promises from some guy who was never intending to keep them and then ended up with a baby or ended up with, uh, you know, falling in love with the wrong person and stuck in a loop of emotional distress. And, and so I think that's the, the kind of setup. I will say, I probably shouldn't even say this, but one of the things about this record that was interesting was I was staying with Matt and I sat down with Matt at one point. He, I was worried about the record. I don't know if it's done. I don't know if the lyrics are done. And he was like, well, why don't you just play it for me? And, uh, which is kind of weird. I can't even imagine doing that in 2022, but 10 years ago, our attention spans were such that maybe we could listen to a whole record. And I wasn't <laughs> sure when I started to play the songs for Matt, if he would stay focused because uh, I mean, he's like, me in that he has a he's easily distracted but he <laughs> honed in in a way that is just incredible and and went through the lyrics with me and was like uh you know anything i had questions on he either had suggestions or or more so just encouraged me to keep stuff he was like that's good keep that but the one critique i remember him saying was 
don't say when he came inside. And I was like, really? Well, I feel like that's super strong in terms of like, you know where the story is going. And he goes, yeah, but it's crass. And I said, crass, like you're, don't you have a song about a dog shit and razor, razor blades? <laughs> and he said, he said, yeah, that's why I'm an authority on the matter. And he was like, that's why you need to listen to me. And we had, that's the song, that's the song Skeeb and I broke down on the show. Oh, there you go. I mean, <laughs> which is a song I love, but I just was trying to like, I was just trying to, um, say, Hey, sometimes the crassest thing you can say drives the nail in. And, yeah. and what he was saying was like, look, I've been down this road and I have to sing that every night and you're going to wish... I bet you're going to wish you didn't say that in five or 10 years. And, and he, Interesting. In the end, he was right. Because I, it is kind of over the top. It is a little bit um, squirmy. It's just sort of a crass way to describe what happened. And so one of the things that would have been better, and I think he even suggested it, was he stayed inside. Which it just, you, you would have a little, it would be left more up to interpretation, but yeah, a that's, little more, a little more ambiguity. Yeah. But anyway, um, so that was an interesting sidebar story to, um, to the making <laughs> of that record and that first lyric. But I, I was kind of convinced of it at the time. And, and sometimes you just got to go with what you think is going to work and, uh, right. and, and what is sort of speaking to you and, and then, um, and see what happens. Hey, everybody, don't you dare go anywhere. There's lots more Chris to make a podcast after these messages from our sponsors. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel. They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. Hey everybody, I'm sure you've heard us mention the Chris to Makes a Podcast supporting cast many times on here, but I'm going to mention it again. Going to ChrisToMakes.com and signing up for our supporting cast not only allows us to continue making this podcast, but you'll also get bonus episodes of the After Party each week. When you sign up at ChrisToMakes.com, you'll instantly get access to our entire back catalog, which includes the episode titled Worst Songs Ever, in which Chris and I go through a list of songs we found on the internet, which are supposedly the worst songs ever, although we don't necessarily agree. Here's a clip from that episode. It to you, Chris. Yeah, we laugh because it's a song about thongs. But have you listened to this song recently? I have not. No, I, I, I of course I know this song. I don't. You'd have to be living... Uh, uh, in, in a bunker 500 feet below the, the, the Earth's core to uh, uh, to not have heard this song. But no, I have not listened to it recently. What's up? The string arrangement in this song is insane and awesome. Like, the production of this song is amazing. And yeah, it's funny. It's about thongs. Whatever. 
You gotta pay attention to the music in this song. The strings in this song, which are performed by violinist Bruce Dukov, are inspired by a strings cover of Eleanor Rigby, and it is absolutely insane. I think this song is kind of a masterpiece, honestly. Well, I'll have to go back and listen to it. I will tell you off the top of my head, this wouldn't have been one that even probably made my top 100 worst songs, just due to the fact that, you know, especially dance type of music, they're... Uh, I hate being cliche here, but the, the, the term sex sells. And sex is always going to be a part of music and rock and roll. And talking about the thong and the booty and, and all that kind of stuff, is it, it sells records. And, and, and a lot of times it can be really fun. Uh, this isn't something that I ever find myself driving down the road listening to. But I would not I would not consider this a worse song. Dude, and it's so funny, too, because Cisco, who famously has usually like white or silver hair, claims that the first time he saw a thong, it turned his hair white, kind of like what happened to Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments, which is really <laughs> funny. Uh, another if you'd like to hear this whole episode, plus a giant back catalog of episodes, plus a new episode each week, plus allow us to continue making Chris Demakes a podcast, head on over to ChrisDemakes.com and join our supporting cast. Thanks, everybody. And now... Back to the show. Well, this uh, first verse, uh, the drums go to a closed hi-hat. The stereo guitars are clean but overdriven. They're just, they, they got this uh, sheen on them. I, I, I love the sound of the guitars here. The piano chords are accenting on the chord changes. And um, there's a low synth sound on the back half of verse one that's kind of just kind of haunting and sitting there yeah uh the the piano starts getting busier mimicking the vocal melody line on the second half the the synth sounds almost like a ooh yeah he used to take you for rides but it all changed in the backseat is that what i'm hearing there is it a, an organ you or are yeah you gotta you i mean i know you have a great ear but but to hear it in real time is is pretty cool i love that part i do too now at the time i was still struggling with like the punk thing you know the punk weight oh can you put a synth in there who knew that <laughs> that in a couple of years the war on drugs would come out and it, you could put synths wherever you want and and all that stuff would come back in vogue but yeah. at the time he laid that in there and i liked it I felt a little bit uncertain of it. And then he referenced, he goes, it's kind of the tunnel of love synth. Yeah. And I, w I went, I went like, wait, 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 we have to mute it then. And everyone looked at me like I was crazy. I was like, well, the tunnel of love synths are what people hated about the Bruce Springsteen era of that he you know I I was so mixed up by by what that sound might mean and and thankfully Andrew and Bo were like well did, you liked it 20 seconds ago and I you know I was like <laughs> you're thinking too much yeah I was really thinking too much and thankfully I had enough people that I trusted around me to stop that at different points and say hey do you like it does it work go you know <laughs> so so yeah it was it was um that was an interesting that's a synth i love now and i'm so happy oh I'm so happy we left it in there i'm all about keeping stuff real and tough and punk rock but man this this synth's gotta be there to me man. yeah it just, oh it, and it, now it, now all these years later like i wouldn't think twice about that like it, it's not something it's something i would have left out for such a foolish reason um, yeah. And now, you know, I'm with you. I, I just think whatever serves the song, like even even if it's completely off the wall. Now, it's fantastic. Well, we get into pre-chorus one. Well, to 
stereo guitar switch from eighth note chugs to a syncopated kind of strumming pattern. The piano is doing single notes on the chord changes. And um, the lyric is, well, I've seen enough to know. He's old enough to know his right from wrong. But I know how hard it is to see things through. On that last line, but I know how hard it is to see things through, there sounds like, and it's definitely there at the pre-chorus breakdown at the end of the song, I can hear a very low harmony there, and it sounds like it's there in pre-chorus one and two. Is there a harmony on that line, very low, mixed? Yeah, there is. Yeah, this was before my brother started to play with me. He, he played with me, it was one year later that he came out on tour, on the Devour touring, and once I had my brother Tim playing with me, I realized just how important our harmonies were together as siblings, but also just harmony in general needed to be up in the mix. So now, if if we made that record now, that harmony would be so loud and it would be sung by Tim. I thought I was hearing it. And then when I, again, at the breakdown, you you can, it sticks out because there's not much there. It's very sparse at the third pre-chorus. But uh, aside from that line uh, in all the pre-choruses, which is different lyrics, but where that placement of that line is, the third lyric uh, in the pre-choruses, that's the only harmonies I hear in the whole song. Am I correct with that? You're probably right. And again, that would not be the way it came out now. If if that would be one of the principal differences is we would have put in put a ton more harmony in now just the way we work now i almost feel though with this song and with this lyric and your delivery that again i'm using the word honest for the 10th time here but it comes across honest and real uh just having your vocal you know you could put harmonies i mean i was actually singing harmonies right. through this <laughs> right i'm see as it was going by i listened to it probably 30 times you know, i'm putting thirds and harmonies and yeah. different stuff and then i'm like yeah you could put harmonies all over the whole thing it's major it's kind of upbeat and happy but no i think i think it's great what you did here dave but what's happening with that lyric there in the in the pre-chorus what are you uh saying there to set up chorus one well i just think i was trying to lean into the empathy of all the characters and whether that's the person that's been told the lie in the first verse you know that that woman or it's the guy telling the lie i've been you know i've been privy to both and i was just trying look he knows his right from wrong but it's hard it's hard to it's hard to come of age america's hard i think it's weird like if you look at america now devour is even more relevant to the it's kind of like the america i saw coming because I'd watched so much erode for working people and watched those struggles start to really come to bear by the time I was 30 or, or so. And so this was written, I guess this was written, I was only about 33 or four, I don't know, somewhere in there. But I had seen a lot of my friends who, you know, come from working class backgrounds and believed a lot of the American lies or whatever, a lot of the various um, half-truths that you get sold and how that worked out for them by the time they were in their 30s. They had struggles with addiction and, and being broke and in broken relationships and divorces and all that kind of stuff. That It had really started to come to bear a lot of those things. And so I just was trying to lean into the empathy for both characters on that pre-chorus, I think. Well, we get into chorus one. And the guitars open up here. There's a tambourine that comes in, which is quarter notes throughout uh, the whole chorus. Start. 
I love how the guitars are each playing counter rhythms to each other, uh, which is very reminiscent. <laughs> Brian Adams would do that a lot. Yeah. He'd have a right and in, in, uh, guitar and stereo guitar, which I'm, I'm speaking of him because it was listed as one of your influences, which I, I think his uh, his catalog is amazing. But um, I love what the guitars are doing there. There's long held out organ pads here throughout. And uh, when you get to uh, the lyric damned the first time, the band stops there and there's a nice tambourine rattle. But I'm going to read these lyrics and uh, have you break these down for us. Oh, no, did it rip you apart to be told we could be kings when we were damned from the start? Oh, no, did it rip you apart? They told us we could be kings and we were damned, damned from the start. Yeah, that's, I think, the part that becomes tricky all these years later. That's kind of what I was referencing earlier was I'm not sure if it's hopeful enough. I mean, it's certainly honest as you've described, and I think it's mostly true, but there's a little bit of, well, if that's the end of the story, then why even write the song? Meaning, if it's hopeless, then what have we done kind of thing, or what should we do? So I think that all these years later, I mean, that's the interesting thing about writing songs and putting them out in, in over a long course of time, is uh, you make different decisions when you're 34 than you do when you're 44 and 24 and all that stuff. So I probably would have messed with that chorus more now and tried to come up with some ray of sunshine to put in. And then we get one in the third chorus. It's so funny you say that, though. This song is so uplifting to me. I never looked at that lyric as not hopeful or a downer. But you as, oh, the, wow. you as the artist writing it did. I never took that away from it. I, I, I Whoa, that's interesting. Yeah, it's like, yeah, we were damned from the start, but but, but we're going to get them. That's what I took from it. Well, that's sort of the, the one thing is, well, my thing, I think when I was writing that, it's hard to put myself back into that headspace but i guess it's it's hard and it's not because we are living in in really fraught times now but i think i was just trying to look at it and go they told you you could be a king and that was just a lie we you, you weren't going to be a king but let's reset let's hopefully reset our expectations and live some kind of meaningful life but the king part of it let's just get that out like because the ones that are going to be kings are, are the sons of you know, those are the silver spooners. You know, we're, we're not them. We're never going to be them. We're never going to be the true heirs to wealth or true success or any of that stuff was sort of my mentality at the time. I'm not, I, now I'm, I think I'm more confused than ever, but <laughs> then I was pretty sure we were not going to get any of that stuff. Well, when the band stops there on uh, Damned from the start and on Start, there's a two bar reintro of that guitar rift panned off to the left as the band holds out over. Uh, and then we get into verse two. From the start, you told him you loved him, but push it come to shove. And there are no easy answers, mixing money and blood. He was too young and no Piano is here mimicking the vocal melody right at the top of the first half, uh, unlike uh, verse one where it didn't come until the second half. It's doing that vocal melody mimicking part, which I think is just great. It just add, adds such a cool uh, cool tone to this verse. But um, halfway through, there's a cool, tasty little guitar riff panned off left halfway through this yeah, verse. Yeah, I love that riff. It, it's awesome. It's awesome. And then uh, That's Mitchell. The, the, at the back half here, that synth comes back in. The piano's still moving around, mimicking the vocal melody. And uh, I'm going to recite the lyrics now, Dave, and uh, have you talk about these. You told him you loved him, but push had come to shove, and there are no easy answers. 
mixing money and blood. He was too young to know better, and we were all unemployed. The sergeant promised a cakewalk, but then he got deployed. Yeah, that was uh, that's just another lie I remember friends of mine getting told was, uh, you know, join the army, go into the reserves. And um, yeah, that was a big, a good friend of mine who I'm, I haven't seen in years and years. He He did that. He went and joined the reserves. And thankfully, he didn't have to go off to any war at that particular time. But I just remember when he decided to go into the army reserves, I was like, man, you are playing with high, high stakes here. And I get that you're doing this. I get that you don't know what else to do. But, you know, if something goes amiss, you're going to die. You know, I remember just thinking like those were the stakes he was playing with, despite it's, you know, having seeming peace at the time. I guess that would have been, I graduated in 1996. So it would have been in in the years after that where, you know, we hadn't been involved with Iraq yet. But I remember that feeling of, I guess it's just more empathy for, for the guy who told the lie, you know, the guy who, who sort of um, promised this woman he was going to be around. And this, again, is like a composite of a couple different people that I knew that were just kind of down on their luck, not a lot of ambition, not a lot of understanding of, of what they wanted to do, and ended up in situations pretty quickly that they didn't bargain for in their 20s. And so that's kind of that second verse. I will say, though, um, but that's that's the lyric. I will say there's one thing as you were going along and saying like what was happening musically, there's a flat seven at the end of that chord progression in the chorus when it goes damned from the start. And that was my first foray into trying to um, spice up the chords that I was using. I, I mean, interesting because I, I picked up the guitar and played along. I didn't catch that. Yeah, it's a flat seven. Cool. And, which I have subsequently really like used a lot throughout um, "Bury Me in Philly" and "Kick," and then also on the most recent record, okay. um, "Blood Harmony." But that was uh, that's a trick that I like to use from time to time. My friend Dan Yeeman, who I was in "Painted Black" with, and he's in "Lifetime" and. He's uh he's pretty sophisticated in his like understanding of chords for for such a punk rocker. And then also Fat Mike, who we all know. Oh, sure. Both of those guys at different points as I was developing as a songwriter urged me towards in their words, quote unquote, cooler chords. <laughs> and um which was a really frustrating thing at the time. Um I remember being like, "Well, what do you mean?" you know, and 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 the souls who I had roadied for are much more like primary color chord guys. Like they they have a ton of success using one, four, five, and six. Um, yeah. And uh, meat and potatoes. Yeah, and they don't really mess with it because it works. I mean, it's always worked. And but these two things really uh, stuck out. This this conversation with Dan Eamon and this and these conversations with with Mike. And so I started to push a little harder and like try things. And I think in that sense, it was really great. Um, you can find some interesting new ways to voice chords or, or to choose different chords that ordinarily you wouldn't go to. And, and that flat seven trick right there, I think works well because that damned gets pronounced with a new, you know, it's, a, it's sort of a twist of a chord there. And then we reset the the verse. So yeah, that was that was something I, I felt like was a successful 
you know, uh, trying something new and having it actually succeed was, was cool. A lot of times you just throw weird chords in and you're like, man, how do the Beatles shoehorn all these cool so- uh, chords into these yeah. songs? Cause they're not sounding right in my song. <laughs> I, I've put weird chords in at the end of the day. It's like the producer's like, can't you just play that major? Why right. are you doing that? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, right. I, I get you're trying to be artsy fartsy, but it's not working here, Chris. Right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of times that happens and, and you go like, well, okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that was my first guess, but, but I guess sometimes when you're going along and, and writing songs if you use the core the weird chord with intention you know that thing it goes damned from the start like it really kind of lifts things out and makes hopefully makes that melody and that lyric land a little better i think that's maybe why it works there and it didn't get uh clipped out you know because yeah i've i've had that happen to me too what you just described you're like why are you going to the you know why are we going minor there it's just just play the major all right all right yeah, that, that's interesting well pre-chorus too uh there's a lyric change here I've seen enough, enough to know. It's not about which side you're on. I know how hard it is to keep it in. And again, we get that harmony on that last line. And uh, what's what's going on here lyrically? Again, I probably wouldn't do that now. I probably would have the pre-chorus be the same. But then I just didn't, uh, I just had whatever it was I had to say that I had to, you know, I wanted to switch it up. I was listening a lot to Connor Oberst and Bright Eyes and, and his work at the time. And uh, he always switches pre-choruses and he always switches choruses. It'll stay the melody, but he'll, he'll switch the whole lyric. And I was pretty into that idea. And, you know, Bob Dylan does that and plenty of people, a lot of rap, rap music does that. And it just felt like another way to say, um, I get it. I get how easily it is to slip into these patterns as, as an adult. Um, I get what we were what we were told and how that's not lining up with what life is looking like. And so it was just more trying to fuse that empathy into the lyric. Gotcha. Well, we're at chorus two. lyric here is is the same as chorus one except on the line where uh the first time you say oh no that it ripped you apart but here you say i know that Mm -hmm. it ripped you apart little change there and i like those things especially in singer songwriter type stuff like this because you're telling a story here i like that it's not cookie cutter you know i i I appreciate that yeah well there's time there's times when the pre-chorus should be the the same as the other ones and and a lot of times in a rock anthem or a pop anthem i think here that uh it lends itself to that and that little subtle difference in chorus two was saying i know it makes it personal you're taking uh responsibility or or, or taking uh, empathy towards that person saying i at the very end here, uh, the last lyric, damned from the start. There's no stop this time, but the band does stop on start. The drums do a cool tom part for two bars, and then mm-hmm. you're in, you know, it's just this little setup for the bridge there, and uh, I love this bridge. The guitar uh, right is playing a nice chord pattern, and the guitar left is playing this arpeggiated guitar part, which is great. I love the separation of the guitars here. They're crystal, mm-hmm. they're crystal clear. They're 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 great. Start. We've been too left 
the arpeggiated chords are mixed really low, but mm-hmm. it, it kind of adds, the, it gives it some tension uh, there. Uh, the lyric is, we've been living to the left of the dial, hoping drinks and denial can keep us here. I'm not promising you some bright side or trying to break your stride, but you asked me, you asked me. Yeah, that's it's funny to hear it just said aloud like that because uh, <laughs> a lot it, of people say that. <laughs> yeah, it makes it it makes a lot of sense when you just say it in plain speak and not sing it. That was just maybe it's just a distilled version of of the whole sentiment where you know they say like a bridge. You know, I mean, songwriting experts, or whatever they say, the bridge should sort of lift you at it to your highest, mm-hmm. um, and and don't put a bridge in unless it's. Uh, as good as the chorus kind of thing. There's all these like little rules that you pick up and these little advices you pick up. And and I felt like that kind of does that. It kind of brings it to its crescendo before you do the the chorus repeats on the way out. Yeah, that that part, it was just maybe me saying like, look, I, I know what it feels like to sit in the bar and lament your life. We're hoping that, you know, the left of the dial thing is an obvious nod to the replacements, but but I, I felt like in that, in that instance, um, I do feel like I was living to the left of the dial. Like me and my friends were a little bit off of what the norm was. You know, I wasn't left of the dial is just a reference to where the, um, radio stations start to get weirder. You like went, went to the right <laughs> of the dial, like in the, from the, this is like really deep in the, in the weeds, but from <laughs> on the, on the radio dial, all the pop radio comes from like you know, 90 on. And so the idea of left of the dial was 90 and below is where you could tune in and find punk stations and, and uh, NPR and all this stuff back in the day. So it's really yeah. kind of a an old reference. The weird jazz station. Yeah, right. Exactly. The, yeah. This, the more esoteric stuff. But I don't know. I just think I was trying to distill the thing and say, like, look, I, I had been in certain instances with friends of mine that did ask, like, well, why do you think how at the time I was touring and my friends were, were a lot of my friends that I had been in bands with or been in the steam with or whatever were not. They had gone to jobs and they had. And so there was this chasm developing where people would be like, well, how come it's working out for you kind of thing? And and uh, so I found myself in, in this awkward position a couple of times and I just referenced it. Like you asked me, you asked me what I thought and what I think is. Like it's fucking hard is is, is essentially what the the driving. That's what we po- that's what we told you on the bus that night. Pretty much in a nutshell. That's you right. Were ask, you were asking us like, I want to get to the next level. It's like uh, you're right here, man. You're, yeah. you're playing. You're, <laughs> we just we just played the electric factory in Philly. There was two thousand people. Like you know? right, right, exactly. Yeah, I think that there and and I mean it's hard in general. You know whether or not that's music or whether or not that's any endeavor. As you go on and on through life, it gets harder. It's it's harder and harder harder to um you know to squeeze joy out of things and and to and to make it all work and i think that's kind of what that bridge is saying you know or, or what i was trying to say was to some of those friends like look you asked me what i thought and what i think yeah. is we got promised a lot of shit that's not going to come and unless um you can find some way to live with it all it's going to be a lot of disappointment and a lot of sadness ahead i think that's kind of what i was driving at there but 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 it is weird like i intentionally with this podcast 
I know how much you prepare for it. And so I was like, let me just answer off the cuff. So I haven't listened to the song. And that's good. That, that, that's, I, I always, I always tell people I, I, I do the heavy lifting. You just got to, yeah, kinda... you really do. You, I mean, you do such a great job and, and, and I mean, <laughs> I appreciate you. that. It's so cool to have someone break down the song. Also someone who is so good at songs. Like you, you are great at oh, songs thanks. To, to have somebody know exactly what's going on. It's like, Whoa, there's someone else like me out there. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm, I'm about as nerdy as it gets with this stuff, but th- thank you. Thank you for saying that, you know, on the last line here, but you asked me the second you asked me, it's kind of like a call and response to the first you asked me. Uh, it's mixed a little quieter there than the preceding vocal. I, I like I like that. It gives it a it gives it a cool feel. Before we get into verse three, which is a broke down, it breaks down to just a soft hi hat doing quarter notes. The guitar on the left almost sounds like it's a volume swell or it's running through a Leslie. I think it's it's a um it's trem. I think it's just like it the trem. Yeah, I think so. I think Mitch just hit that. I don't know that it's running through a Leslie because I don't think Mitchell had one, but it's that kind of idea. He is a master of developing uh, in the same way that Bo is. Uh, Mitch can take the guitar and turn it one little way away and go, what is he doing there? Because I've had to relearn all this stuff. And that trem is super cool. Yeah, it's such a cool effect there. And the piano on the right is doing whole notes on the chord changes, which I absolutely love. I love the, the, the back and forth that you're getting that. What I'm, what I'm hearing is a kind of a volume swell tremolo thing to the right. And it's, you're, you're making your brain do a little, uh, little back and forth there. In an instant, they said nobody was spared. Not gonna take love you. Not gonna take care. You ask me. You ask me. Well, he was gone in an instant. They said nobody was spared. Not going to tell you he loved you. Not going to tell you he cared. You asked me. You asked me. And the first you asked me is panned off to the right, just your vocal. The second one's panned off to the left. Then we get into uh, pre-chorus three. And before we do that, uh, what are you trying to uh, say here as we're getting near the end of the song? I mean, this is one of the songs of mine that people have latched onto. So it's tricky business to describe exactly what I meant with that lyric. But in my estimation, that person who made all those promises to that woman in verse one um, and then signed up for the army. You know, he got deployed. He didn't make it. Something bad happened in that war and he oh. didn't make it home. And so that was, uh, he was gone in an instant. They said, nobody was spared. I'm not going to tell you he loved you. I'm not going to tell you he cared. I don't know is what I'm saying to this woman, I think, from verse one. I don't know if he loved you. I don't know. I mean, maybe it was just, maybe it was just a fling. I don't know. But we got to move on because th- that goes right into the pre-chorus of I've, I've seen enough to know um, sometimes with the truth, you got to let it go. And and I think, look, I don't, I'm not going to tell you he loved you. I'm not going to tell you he cared, but he's gone. And, and mm-hmm. we got to, that's the truth. You got to just sometimes live with. Um, and so that, that sort of, that verse three into that third pre and then into the chorus there is kind of uh, it's, I mean, it's all connected and, mm-hmm. um, well, I, I, I like the bridge in this song and I agree with you. The bridge a lot of times is the pinnacle. I mm-hmm. don't feel the bridge is the pinnacle for this song. And I mean that in a good way. This mm-hmm. verse, when it gets broke down, it takes you to a place. And then that pre the, what's going on here in the pre-chorus. And, and, and I want to set this up here. The, the drums, bass and guitar are playing to this, uh, it's like a, 
floor tom, bass drum, and snare. It's like a breakdown that's happening. And in between the spaces of that, uh, the guitar on the right is continuing the rhythm from pre-chorus one. The mm-hmm. high synth is back, which is super cool. Well, I've seen enough, enough to know Sometimes with the truth you gotta let it go I know how hard it is to keep it in You ask me, you ask me Again, lyric change here on, on, mm-hmm. the, on, the, on the third pre-chorus Not the same as one and two Well, I've seen enough, enough to know Sometimes with the truth you gotta let it go I know how hard it is to keep it in and on it in there the melody goes up i don't know if that was conscious or not for the melody to go up on on just it in to keep it in yeah right right it wasn't conscious i mean a lot of the best stuff happens un- unconsciously like when you're just in the vocal booth hopefully given enough time and and uh you know to kind of let it rip Mm-hmm. Um, it just felt like I, the melody should do that there, but you're right. It does sort of underpin the lyric. I hadn't even thought about that. Well, this is this is interesting because um, again, the lyric is not the same for any of them. Just the placement of where that part is. So it was odd for me. I kept listening, going, "Why does this feel different? Why does this feel?" Different? And I I would reference pre-chorus one and two in the same spot, and finally, oh, he goes up on the notes there, and it just li- just for those two words, it lifts <laughs> that little bit that just you you know it just. You know that that chorus three is coming. It's just it's it's perfect. Uh, the last three lyrics are "You asked me." Uh, you say that three times there, and uh, there's a four bar buildup on the bass drum floor, Tom, and with the bass and guitar doing eighth notes. Uh, you get that for four bars before we go into chorus three. three has new lyrics here it's not completely different but i feel it's enough to warrant a reread i won't go and rip you apart won't tell you you could be king i don't want to break your heart i won't go and rip you apart so open wide and just sing because we're all damned open wide and just sing because we're all damned damn from the start we're damned from the start it's really cool what's going on here the first half of the chorus you're getting almost one and a half choruses here, but on the line, so open wide and just sing, that's a completely new lyric that comes in. And then on, because we're all damned, you don't get the damn from the start because there's a fake out there. Doesn't happen there. And right. then uh, then we have the turnaround at the end here, the last couple of lyrics. And it, it sounds like there's a subtle on the first couple of lyrics, open wide and just sing because we're all damned, damned from the start. It sounds like there's a subtle low mixed slide guitar or pedal steel off to the left. This is the part that just floors me. I love this. After that, you get eight bars of a pre-chorus progression. You go back to the pre-chorus there. Yeah. Uh, and, and halfway through, you get that last lyric, we're damned from the start. But uh, now you can really hear what I'm calling a, either a slide guitar or a pedal steel. Now it's loud. It's panned off to the left. Damn. 
What is that there? That's a pedal steel solo that we... It um, is. Yeah. Again, that's Mitchell. And... um, It's so rad. Yeah, it really is. Again, you know, I was finding the common ground with a lot of these guys that were a little bit older and a lot more experienced than I was. And I think that part of the thing that maybe they saw in me, other than the songs or whatever, was just... I mean, I did... I do love music. And so they would find these instances where they would go, well, what about... Jackson Brown. You said you love Jackson Brown. Oh, yeah. And so what that is, is uh, Mitchell's best attempt at a David Lindley solo. Um, And when you hear it in that realm, if you go back and listen to it and think of Jackson Brown, it really is an incredible reference or nod to to what David Lindley did in a lot of those early Jackson Brown. It just is coming into like this upbeat, really rock song. Now, here's my problem with with the pedal steel coming in there is oh, that if, if if I no, I don't mean problem in a bad way. If I were to have that him play that in the studio on one of my recordings and how killer it came out there, then my brain my brain would be going, oh, well, you got to put it on the bridge now. Well, of course <laughs> I said that. Yeah, of course we said that. But again, there was a fearlessness in the making of that record because the audience was still really i mean the audience still is is relatively small for me but that said um there were so few expectations uh because i had made this kind of weird solo record after being in a punk band for two albums and and all the touring of that so i was already throwing curveballs at at the audience that i had and i think that there was a fearlessness amongst those players it was like look nobody's really getting paid here. We're doing this for the love. Like, let's do something totally fearless. Because you're right. Now I would go, wait a second. That pedal steel should come into the top of the song. You know, it should be woven throughout. You know, I would have probably overused it now. But yeah. in that instance, he was like, no, this is like a coda. This is a finale. Exactly. And the Jackson Brown reference is perfect. And I got to tell you, no disrespect to the loved ones. But yeah, it, you sang for that band. You're singing on this. It's like, oh, it kind of sounds like loved one. When that pedal steel comes in, <laughs> there, well, there's a bit of a maturity. There's a bit of of, 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 a, of a leap that you took as a person, I I feel. You know, that, I think that probably, would, probably wouldn't have made it onto a loved one's record. Pro- or it would have made it on and confused our audience. You know, that... that, that <laughs> That would <laughs> that, that would have been uh, that would have been it, you know because everybody in that band was pretty um, fearless and loved all kinds of music but there definitely was an understanding that we were when you're in a band you have to understand branding a little more and I think as a solo artist for whatever reason people allow you tons of. Uh, they, they allow you to do more stuff. I don't know right. why. I don't know why that works. We could do a whole podcast about that. But <laughs> but generally speaking, um, that pedal steel lick is one of my favorite things about it. Tim, my brother, plays lead guitar in you know with me in our band when we go out as a band, and and he's always he's always playing that lick on a guitar. Does he use a slide with it? Because it almost sounds like it's a slide. No, no, because he hasn't really mastered his slide. Uh, I can't stuff, play slide. But yeah, it's really tough. But I'm <laughs> yeah. always kind of chasing him like, hey, I have a, uh, I have a lap steel, like plug that thing in. And he's like, well, what am I going to do? Sit down in the middle of the, <laughs> you know, at the end of the song and play that. So we sort of have bickered about that at different nah, points. Live, it's fine. I'm sure what you do, but man, what, what a cool part. And I just, again, I, I got to talk about ending coming back to the pre-chorus you don't sing you're just using the progression i think it's genius there and uh, the, the 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 song comes to a close uh 
ton of my listeners have been asking about you for a long time. I keep saying to myself, I'll get Dave, I'll get Dave. And finally, it, it came to fruition here. I want to thank you. And before we wrap up, uh, what would you like to leave the listeners with, man? What, what, what's going on after, after you get your, uh, get your twins healthy and, and pneumonia free? What's happening in the world of Dave Haas? We are going, uh, let's see, we have a bunch of shows planned. We're going to Europe in September with, uh, so it's Dave Haas and the Mermaid. That means we're bringing the band and we're doing the whole thing. We're doing a club tour over there and that'll sort of wrap um the band stuff that we're doing this year um i am writing a ton of songs we're going to record this summer we're going to record another new record and um and then after the european tour we'll start to pivot back towards like duo and trio shows where it's my brother and i will probably bring our keyboard player and so you know it's just pushing pushing more songs and pushing new creative boundaries, you know, trying to do the show with a band and do the show without a band and, and continue to kind of chase the song through these tumultuous times, man. It's crazy out there, but, uh, but I, I am excited to, uh, to keep chasing that song dragon. Right on, man. Well, Hey, again, thank you so much for sitting in today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Great to see you, buddy. There's lots more Chris to Makes a Podcast after a few words from our sponsors. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effie Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. If you like music and you like podcasts and you like to laugh and you like to learn, you need to immediately subscribe to One Hit Thunder. Each week on the One Hit Thunder podcast, we dive deep into the story and back catalog of a one-hit wonder band or artist. From there, we have a good, healthy discussion as to whether they brought the one-hit thunder or were nothing more than a one-hit wonder. We have a huge back catalog, and we've done episodes on everything from Don't Worry, Be Happy, and the Macarena to King of Wishful Thinking and Cumbersome. I promise you're going to love the show more than Jaquan loved getting tipsy, and even more than Bobby Boris Pickett loved making alternate versions of the Monster Mash. Subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your podcasts. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered for Chris to Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is email your best song via MP3 only and bio to bandyoumightnotknow at gmail.com. This week's featured artist is Better Luck, an emo rock band from the United Kingdom. They just released a new EP, and you can find them on Instagram at Better Luck the Band. Here's a snippet of their song, Midnight. Chris and Chris.
As usual, Chris, that was a really great episode. I thought Dave was really awesome at talking about songwriting. And I also will note, he seemed legitimately impressed at the work you did breaking down the song, which I always like to see that because I know you put a lot of work into these. Yeah, no, it was it, it was de- definitely definitely nice to hear. I've I've known Dave a long time and I was almost hesitant to bring up that story. I didn't want to embarrass him or have him be like, "Where's he going with this?" But I'll never forget that night him coming on the bus and and he does remember remember the talk and it didn't come off as arrogant. It just came off as somebody that just really wanted to make uh, music their career as as a lot, lot of us do. And uh, he was having a hard time navigating his way through. And geez, it was a short three years later that he started this solo career. And, and, and here we are now. And I think he kind of uh, undervalues himself maybe a little bit. You know, he, you know, my, he's like, you know, I'm not that big as an artist or whatever, but he does well. I saw him uh, at a punk rock holiday over in Slovenia, uh, over in Europe and uh, to a packed house. He probably played in front of two, 3,000 people that day and brought the house down. His, his band, The Mermaid's great. Yeah, I wouldn't think twice about anything, like even that story, because as a guy in a band, geez, how many times have me and my bandmates had those same sort of feelings? I mean, Chris, even in your position, I'm sure you've had that those feelings one way or another. That's completely normal. That's not being arrogant or anything. Yeah. And yeah, Punchline had played, I brought this up to Dave, we played with Dave at the WYEP festival they had here in Pittsburgh a few years ago and he was great and um something that I really related to that he talked about in this episode and and Chris I don't know if you've ever had this thought is when he mentioned is this song too hopeless is there not like however he put it is there not a light at the end of the tunnel here yeah because I've had that same thought man that if a song doesn't give you hope What's the point? I know there's this one punchline song that I always make fun of uh, among my bandmates from back in the day from like 2005, where it's just like such a downer and there is no redeeming part (laughs) of it. And man, Chris, I know I bring her up to you all the time. I'm the biggest Bjork fan in the world. And she had this interview. I've dug for the actual quote so much I can't find it. But basically it was along the lines of she won't write a song even if it's a sad song, there has to be a message of hope behind the song or else she doesn't want to make it. You know, I think that's so important. Yeah, I, I, I do, too. And in this instance, I didn't take that away from the lyric. You know, we're all damn, damn from the start. It's like, OK, I, I took that as kind of like I, I told Dave, we're the underdog and, you know, I'll show you type thing. And <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to rise up and, and it's, it's all going to be good at the end. So I didn't take that from this. And I got to say, Chris, it, it's not easy to reinvent yourself from where you come from. You know, I'll, I'll forever be uh, uh, the guitar player and singer for Less Than Jake. I'm proud of that. Uh, to embark on a, a, a solo career, minus, you know, releasing a couple seven inches here or, or there for fun. Uh, you know, getting back out there, uh, the thought of, of purchasing a van and going and trying to make a solo career, it's daunting. Uh, even huge superstars that step outside of their main acts, huge names have had w- what is deemed failed solo careers, and they go right back to their band. It's so hard, and how he's he's really reinvented himself himself and, and to get out there and to network and, and do what he's done. It's a, it's a great success story. I don't know if people realize that if you, if you don't play in a band or, or whatever, how hard it is to transition to be it another band or side project or a solo project. Maybe the first time you do that, you assume that all the fans you made with your other band are going to follow you. And the fact of the matter is <laughs> that it's only a small percentage of 
who will care. And Chris, you you brought it up. I can't tell you how many bands and artists that even I love, I'm guilty of it. Well, I I, I think that uh, we all have choices and we only have so many hours in the day to, to fill in those slots with what choices we're going to, you know, fill our days with, be it a, a book or TV show or hobbies or reading and music and, and whatever else that we do. So uh, I think that you, you look at the end of the day and say, oh, he's got a solo career and I'll get to it or maybe I'll listen to it. And, and you just don't because, um, you know, the <laughs> the, the the band that you're bore out of that you're known from that's who, who we've grown to love and that's what that's what's exciting so if they step outside of that it's uh again it's an uphill battle it's very difficult the fact that uh in the last 10 years he's turned it around and he, he's going out and he's he's more successful now as a solo artist than he's ever been in his career is, is fantastic yeah that speaks to the impressiveness of that feat seemed very dedicated. I mean, he talked about he was at that crossroads with his bandmates, that this album was supposed to be a Loved Ones album, but his bandmates from the Loved Ones didn't want to tour. And Dave mm-hmm. knew, like, it might not happen. I mean, By it, I mean financially supporting yourself on a music career. That's what I consider making it. But yeah. that might not even happen, even if you do tour relentlessly. But it's almost guaranteed not going to happen if you don't put in the road work for it. Sure. And I just, I love all the similarities that our paths have continued along, you know, early on it was, you know, we toured with loved ones and that was our connection. And, you know, we knew a lot of the same guys, the Chuck Reagans, the Tim Berries and the Matt Skibas of, of the world. But, you know, he listed his influences, social D the Hooters. He got David from social D to play drums on this song. And you know, there's Bob Thompson, the bassist, who's a ripper from one of my favorite bands, big drill car. And then producer Andrew Alekel, uh, whom we worked with, Less Than Jake on Borders and Boundaries. They went to the same studio, Grandmaster Studios in Hollywood, to track this. And just uh, the, the, the hits they kept to coming with this. It was just so cool to uh, to dig into this episode and, and, and see all of that. Chris, I wanted to jump in and go, hey, my band recorded there, too. Punchline recorded at Grandmaster <laughs> as well. So we all three of us had that in common. Um, Did we ever talk about that, you and I? Uh, maybe at one point. Yeah, yeah. Back our album uh, was an EP, So Nice to Meet You. But uh, you, wouldn't, yeah. you wouldn't know uh, uh, where it's at. It was a very nondescript building. Yeah. But for, the, for, for those familiar with Hollywood, it was uh, about four or five blocks from the Capitol building. It was right by Amoeba Records. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that Amoeba is still right there in Hollywood or not. I, I want to say it moved. But uh, anyhow, yeah, great, uh, great place and, and everything he said about it the big drum room and yeah. it's it's a very very cool studio the, it's cool when you step into a room where all that history was i mean the stevie wonder part was the big part that was the first thing we heard about and the of course the the dave Grohl drums that was actually the first thing but the stevie wonder part was like wow stevie wonder was in this room playing songs in the key of life that's amazing so you know it adds that little bit of extra mystique and mood and gets you in the I don't know, the headspace to want to create music like you feel like, oh, there's been a lot of amazing stuff has happened here, let alone the sounds you can get from the actual studio. That goes without saying. Uh, Chris, one more thing I wanted to talk about from this episode. It was really interesting hearing him talk about that one lyric that can be taken as kind of crass in the song where, where he said he was talking to Matt Skiba about it. And Matt Skiba was advising him not to put that lyric in. I thought that was really funny considering the lyricist and the style of lyrics that Matt Skiba is known for, but that's such a good point. And something to think about from here on out that I will think about is when you're recording something, even if it sounds like the right decision in the moment, maybe think about the fact that, Hey, I got to sing that lyric 
forever. For as long as mm-hmm. I play this song, I have to sing that lyric. So do I want to say this? <laughs> not saying not to do it, but think about it. That's all. And Dave thought about it, and I- I'm glad he didn't take it out. It-, it makes sense to me lyrically. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, something else people should think about, Chris. Oh, what's that? They should think about joining our supporting cast over at ChrisDemakes.com. That's where you will get extra extra bonus episodes called the after party where chris and i put a lot of love and attention into uh you can either get uh the five dollar subscription or the ten dollar subscription a month the ten dollar one gets you four episodes one a week the five dollar gives you two episodes chrisdemakes.com sign up for the supporting cast we would appreciate it no crass lyrics coming out of those bonus episodes nothing crass whatsoever chris they are squeaky clean (laughs) That's right. So for a price of uh, a cup of coffee, five bucks or two cups of coffee, ten, you can get uh, all that and you'd be uh, helping support the podcast that you know and love. I was actually just kidding about that. Sometimes we do. (laughs) Sometimes we get a little looser on those, actually. (laughs) We actually do get kind of loose with those. They're a lot of fun. And uh, I'm going to beat it like a dead horse. Kristamakes.com. Go sign up. We'd love to have you. And if you haven't already, join our Facebook group. Krista Makes a Podcast Facebook group. It's a lot of fun. And give me a follow on Instagram at less than Chris D. I'd appreciate it. want to thank this week's guest for sitting with us, Dave Haas, and we'll see you next week. Do you enjoy the content and production of Krista Makes a Podcast? Do you have an idea for a podcast or an existing podcast that you'd like to take to the next level? Well, check out WeKnowPodcasting.com. At WeKnowPodcasting.com, we have over 25 years of combined experience in the pod field, and we're ready to help you succeed in the golden era of podcasting. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal, the man, to Fat Mike from NoFX and Ian McKay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.